Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Dull i the Grass. Uh, this is a traditional folktale from Scandinavia. We're taking our version out of Popular Tales of the Norse, 1903, English translation. Um, there's also a very uh, delightful comic book version from Classics Illustrated Junior, number 560, under the title The Doll Princess. The story there is slightly different, um, and the main character's name is different, but that's fairly common. And I think uh, before we talk about that, we should definitely talk about the original, or as close to the original as we can get in English, this translation. Can you uh, read it for us? My pleasure. Doll of the Grass, which is I apostrophe, doll in the grass, I'm supposed to sound uh, dialectal. Doll of the Grass. Once upon a time, there was a king who had 12 sons. When they were grown big, he told them they must go out into the world and win themselves wives. But these wives must each be able to spin and weave and sew a shirt in one day, else he wouldn't have them for daughters-in-law. To each he gave a horse and a new suit of mail, and they went out into the world to look after their brides. But when they had gone a bit of the way, they said they wouldn't have Boots, their youngest brother, with them. He wasn't fit for anything. Well, Boots had to stay behind, and he didn't know what to do or whither to turn, and so he grew so downcast he got off his horse and sat down in the tall grass to weep. But when he had sat a little while, one of the tufts in the grass began to stir and move, and out of it came a little white thing. And when it came nearer, Boots saw it was a charming little lassie, only such a tiny bit of a thing. So the lassie went up to him and asked if he would come down below and see the doll of the grass. Yes, he'd be very happy. And so he went. Now, when he got down, there sat doll of the grass on a chair. And she was so lovely and so smart. And she asked Boots whither he was going and what was his business. So he told her how there were 12 brothers of them and how the king had given them horse and mail and said they must each go out into the world and find them a wife who could spin and weave and sew a shirt in a day. But if you'll only say it once, you'll be my wife. I'll not go a step farther, said Boots to Doll of the Grass. Well, she was willing enough. And so she made haste and span and wove and sewed the shirt. But it was so tiny, tiny little. It wasn't longer than so long. So Boots set off home with it. But when he brought it out, he was almost ashamed it was so small. Still, the king said he should have her. And so Boots set off glad and happy to fetch his little sweetheart. So when he got to doll the grass, he wished to take her up before him on his horse. But she wouldn't have that. For she said she would sit and drive along in a silver spoon and that she had two small white horses to draw her. So off they set, he on his horse and she on her silver spoon, and the two horses that drew her were two tiny white mice. But Boots always kept the other side of the road. He was so afraid lest he should ride over her. She was so little. So when they had gone a bit of the way, they came to a great piece of water. 
Here, Boots' horse got frightened and shied across the road and upset the spoon and dull the grass, tumbled into the water. Then Boots got so sorrowful because he didn't know how to get her out again. But in a little while, up came a merman with her. And now she was as well and full-grown as other men and women and far lovelier than she had been before. So he took her up before him on his horse and rode home. When Boots got home, all his brothers had come back, each with his sweetheart, but these were all so ugly and foul and wicked that they had done nothing but fight with one another on the way home, and on their heads they had a kind of hat that was daubed over with tar and soot, and so the rain had run down off their hats onto their faces till they got far uglier and nastier than they had been before. When his brother saw Boots and his sweetheart, they were all as jealous as jealous could be of her. But the king was so overjoyed with them both that he drove all the others away. And so Boots held his wedding feast with Doll the Grass, and after that they lived well and happily together a long, long time. And if they're not dead, why, they're alive still. Well, that was lovely. Thank you. Um, this is... Uh a great story. It's not my preferred version. I much prefer the one in uh, the Classics Illustrated Junior, and uh, one of the reasons I think I I like that one better is because this one is much shorter somehow. Even though the actions are pretty much the same, uh, the things that are in it seem compressed. And also there's a merman in it for some reason. So... I actually had quite a bit of difficulty finding this original. The uh, Classics Illustrated doesn't attribute, you know, Brothers Grimm. It doesn't mention uh, any particular authors, no origin for it at all. It doesn't even say, you know, Northern Europe or anything like that. Um, the way I found it was by digging around, looking for uh, something that sounded vaguely sim similar in the Arne Thompson uh, cultural folktale index, which lists hundreds of folktales from around the world and makes compar comparisons between them. Um, what I did notice, um, though, about this, uh, both versions and uh, a lot of other stories while looking through there, is that this is a lot like um, many other stories. It's got 12 princes. We did a story recently called uh, uh, 12 Dancing Princesses. And there was 12 princes in that one. And most of them are unnamed. And also it's got a little uh, Cinderella with magic uh, vehicle being pulled by uh, mice. And I don't know what all the things that get, are involved in that transformation. Um, and the other thing that's kind of strange in here is that we have no explanation for most of the things that happen. Like... Why is this doll princess transformed in size? That's usually explained in other folk tales, like she was under a witch's curse, or he was he was bewitched uh, by his parents, or something like that. So, what did you make of it uh, when you read this original here? Oh, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. the The thing we I think it's really a, a thing that I think it's really important to to realize about uh, oral folk tales. 
this isn't, I mean, this is scribal, but, um, but it's closer to oral. And as I think I can argue to you, um, than is our other versions like the one in the Classics Illustrated Junior. The thing we need to remember about oral folktales is that much of what happens is simply presumed to happen. Uh, for example, as you and I have discussed before in Rapunzel, when the witch is, has, you know, catches the father, the father-to-be, who's been stealing Rampion out of her garden, and he says, well, but you see, my wife really, really wanted it, and so the witch says, well, if it's as you may be, um, you, you can have as much as you like, as you say, you can have as much as you like, but the child that comes of it shall belong to me. Uh, what child? The child has never been mentioned. Mm-hmm. But we're supposed to understand it. We just understand some things. And uh, as uh, Max Luthi points out in uh, Once Upon a Time, Ansvar Einmal, a really terrific book on on fairy tales, in, in a true oral tale, nobody ever says, I love you, to anyone else. Mm. They just give them food. And, and and this idea of relationship follows out. So in Hansel and Gretel, um, there's the mother's already gone. In comes a stepmother. Stepmothers are not as nice as mothers. But you still can't kill a stepmother because that's daddy's choice. Mm-hmm. But Hansel and Gretel get abandoned in the forest and they meet a witch who would eat them. And so they have a right to kill her. When they come back, the stepmother is dead. Obviously, the killing of the 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 witch stands for the killing of the stepmother. Mm-hmm. It becomes illicit because it's someone else. So there are all these connections in which A stands for B. And we don't have to get the exact answers. In Hansel and Gretel, by the way, a bird, a swan, brings them across water coming back to their house. And here we have a merman who is, I think quite obviously an inhabitant of two realms the realm of the water right which the the boots and doll of the house come to and the realm of the land that boots inhabits um, this am- amphibian character this uh, dual character saves her the girl and so he brings her through a baptism from, in fact, one realm to the other, from the realm of enchantment and fairies and so on to the realm of ordinary kings and princes. So that that merman is an aspect of Boots, I think, Mm. because Boots has already shown himself immediately willing, wanting to marry her. I mean, look what happens. He sees her, and the next sentence says, she was so pretty and so smart. Now, I don't know about you, Jesse, <laughs> but personally, I don't have so much faith in my acuity that I can just look at a person and tell if they are super smart. <laughs> um, you know, you just, you can't do that. But in a fairy tale, you just know it. That's it. You just, you just know it. <laughs> so he just knows these things. So what do I make of this? I make of this, frankly, to be a, a fairy tale that includes many, many, many traditional images. Um, and to see what those those might be, I have recommended before, uh, taking a look at Vladimir Propp's Morphology of the Folktale, that first 
worked out what the true elements are of an oral folktale, which oral fairy tales are. Uh, but why 12 brothers? Mm. Well, 12 brothers doesn't go... That there are multiple tests, as Prop was able to demonstrate, goes back before, way before Christianity. It goes back to, to prehistoric times. But 12 is really important in the story of uh, Joseph and Benjamin, the, the youngest son, Benjamin, being kept as a hostage by Joseph after Joseph has been sold into slavery by the other 11 of the 12 sons. Uh, so that, you know, we have here one son being rejected, and Boots is taking the role of both Benjamin and Joseph. He is abandoned, but he has that name with a B um, in this translation. So uh, he is the one who is cast out. Now, in fact, Joseph, in the Bible story, manages to bring back all of his family, including his brothers, um, because uh, there's a famine in the land. That's why he, they were going down to Egypt to see if they could get food. Um, he's risen to being the viceroy and is able to save his family. But the brothers, you know, though he will feed them, the brothers are no longer the favorites. Benjamin and Joseph are the favorites. They're the, the, the two sons of the second wife. Now, here, what we get is a story that is reminiscent of uh, Cinderella, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. And in Cinderella, in the Grimm version, which is closer to the prehistoric versions than Disney gives us by, by far, those stepsisters are not ugly, they are beautiful, and yet they are punished with torture um, and probably death um, at the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Here, the king drives out the other 11 brothers. This is much closer to Grimm and much closer to those original stories. So that these 12 brothers come out the youngest is the one who is cast aside, but instead of failing, he succeeds. When they are cast out, he's the one who's going ultimately to inherit the kingdom. So we have here a story that picks up motifs. Those are, of course, as you, you know, what Arne Thompson uh, index uses to locate those many, many stories it, it lists. It, it picks up many motifs that are really quite standard. So why is it that they have to make, uh, they set this task, he, the king sets this task for the daughters-in-law? Because he wants to see whether or not there is a fit mother for his successor. Mm -hmm. He knows he's got sons, but he wants to see if he can get the right grandsons. Right? So he sets a task, and this is entirely in keeping. There's a social structure in which men are more important than women, fertile women are more important than, than pre-fertile or post-fertile women, higher people with more money are more important than people with little money. But what does Boots do? He is asked by a cute little thing if he is willing to go down below. Mm -hmm. All right, so we have a journey underground in which he comes up with new knowledge and brings it back to the world, and it, in fact, enriches him. This is a tradition, another traditional motif. It's called catabasis, 
the journey down and return. It's what Odysseus does when he goes down to Hades and is able to uh, get new knowledge from Tiresias so that he's able to continue his journey back home. This catabasis is what Boots does, and he has no, no fear of it. He just sees the pretty little thing and immediately knows that she can be trusted. He goes down, sees Doll in the Grass sitting in a chair, Maybe that's a diminutive throne. She's mm-hmm. a princess in her own right. And immediately knows that she's not only pretty, but smart and sweet and kind and so on. So all the pieces of this fall together, it seems to me, to make a story that says, by golly, the youngest, littlest guy, the one who's being rejected, is going to be the one who is rewarded by getting the very best thing in inheriting the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And how does he do that? He gets it because um, he goes through a process of being a part of another world. He gives himself up and is, in a sense, baptized. I I think it's really a, a lovely story that is in perfect accord with the Grimm's tales. And the, the, uh, the classics illustrated junior makes deviations from that. Mm-hmm. I, I won't speak further except to mention just one um, so that maybe that'll get you to talk about your sense of the two together. Um, all 12 brothers wind up with, uh, with uh, brides at the end. The, the brothers don't suffer for having... Um, been bad to boots or right. who's named it's Eric a happier ending for everybody it, it's a yeah uh, but i think it whitewashes the struggle the inter intrafamilial struggle that the story of joseph and benjamin gives us that the story of the disciples the 12 disciples of which one is a turncoat gives us that this story the norse version gives us so that's just one difference but anyway you asked what did I make of this odd story? I think it coheres well, and if I'd like to know if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. If not, do better for me, please, and at least show me your ideas about the relation of the two versions. So, um, uh, Boots, as he's called in in uh, this version, he's called Eric in the comic book version, and there's another version I found that has him called Ash Ashipetal, which is a very interesting name. Um, each of these these characters are kind of mysterious to me. The father seems to, the, the king seems to make the most sense in that, you know, he is trying to make his 12 sons find wives that are suitable. And it turns out that the one that's most suitable is actually, you know, looking at her, incapable of producing a grandson for him. He's She's tiny. Um, in the version that you read, Doll in the Grass, the, the, the test comes before the marriage approval. Um, that is, the uh, character of Boots takes the shirt back and says, would this be suitable father? And the father says, absolutely. And then he goes and gets his wife and brings her uh, and has that experience where she's transformed, right? 
Um, but actually, in the comic book version, it's, I think, much better in that that experience of the test is drawn out by seeing all the brothers have their wives tested. And each of them is terrible at making shirts in different ways. One makes the arms too long, another doesn't hem the edges, uh, one doesn't have any arms, you know, one didn't complete, you know, it's a long list of failed shirts. Um, and in looking for this story, I didn't realize that it was a test for the father. So the, the, it's the father-in-law who wants this shirt. And so he has this, I mean, obviously a tiny little shirt as produced in both stories is useless for the father, but he's doing it as a proxy for, for his grandson and for his son, having the wisdom to say, you know, go and get a suitable wife. I will judge. Um, Boots, the youngest, um, in the original Norse folktale, is cruelly treated by his brothers. In this uh, comic book adaptation uh, called The Dull Princess, she is, uh, he is treated a little bit poorly by his brothers. They say, we can't wait, waste time waiting for you while your horse is tired. But Boots is actually very kind-hearted. It's shown in a number of ways. In the original story, he's, he cries because he's so sad at his brother's betrayal, his brother's not treating him properly. They don't like him. He's the youngest. He's the stupidest. He's the dumbest. And yet... His tears eventually produce that doll in the grass, the tiny little woman who turns out to be the best of them all. And then having Boots do the saving in the comic book version rather than the merman, it seems to me that's like that. That's like I always like to look at the connection of water and water and fire and fire. So he gives water to the grass at the beginning with his tears. And then later on, he dives into the water in the comic book version to save the, the woman. That's why I think you're right in that the merman is kind of a twin of Boots. Why does she fall in there? Because it's part of that test, right? It's part of that, exp that um, transformation. And it turns out that the wife he chose was the right wife. Um, when I was talking about this story with a friend of mine, I was saying uh, how I'm going to rewrite it. I'm going to take the original text and just tweak it slightly. And the reason is I want to draw out that point, the how strange it is that you choose a tiny, tiny little woman as a wife and your father, who is the king, says that's a suitable wife for you. In the original version, he gets the full-size wife but it's only in the comic book version where we get his love for her transforms her from a tiny little thing he couldn't help himself he was so happy that his wife his potential wife has passed the test he kisses her and that breaks the spell that made her tiny and she grows to full size so now they're not going to have any grandchildren problem because she's full size. She won't have any birth canal issues with giant babies, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. So he's just so overjoyed. And that kind of breaks the spell for 
the brothers too, all these bad wives, all these haughty princesses who didn't learn to spin and weave and sew a shirt in one day, they all are not punished because of his love for this uh, kind of deformed <laughs> tiny thing that is not suitable for a wife. So I was, I was telling my friend how I would uh, make this more explicit in the story. And um, as you know, in uh, the story we did with 12 princesses, um, the 12 dancing princesses and the 12 um, princesses, uh, princes underground, we had a, a situation in which um, the comic book names all the princes, right? The original just says, or treats them as uh, the youngest, the eldest, and all the ones in between, in both the princes and princesses. Here, I, I did that idea of naming it like they do in the comics. So I named all the brothers. Um, we've got Boots or Asha Petal um, or Eric. <laughs> Maybe I'll keep it as Eric. And, uh, I am honored. <laughs> and then I gave them, uh, gave them all brides. And these are the brides they brought back. Albert brought back a pail of water. Maurice, <laughs> he, he just brought back his own shadow. Oscar brought back a robot. Armand brought back two horseshoes. Rudolph brought a white rabbit in a plastic bag. Conrad brought a wooden coffin with a skeleton inside. Gary brought an empty wine bottle. Stanley, a golden slipper. Aladar brought a broken clock. Jack brought some magic beans, and Felix brought his own horse back as suitable brides. No wonder they didn't pass the test. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if you go out and you, you go out to look for a suitable princess for your kingdom, so you can be the son who inherits, um, she has to be fertile. She has to be able to sew a shirt. Right? These are the things that are required. But <laughs> only Eric was capable of getting anywhere close and i think that that's that's what's so funny is you know this is a totally unrealistic task this is not the way <laughs> i mean and yet it also is real you go out into the world the king gives you what well, he gives you a shiny mail and a new horse or a new suit of mail and a, and a good horse and they go off riding looking for rides I guess that's what parents do, right? They raise their kids up, they put a shirt on their back, and they help them make that first car payment and send them off to college. And then they come back with a bride or a husband or whatever. I like very much the way you uh, you play with these things, which I think one is supposed to, because the, the underlying structure and the skeleton of uh, a true oral tale are so strong that you can put many different fleshes on them. And... Uh, I like your your humorous play with him. Um, brought back only his own shadow. Uh, boy, there's a narcissist for you. <laughs> now, um, but I I still prefer that my taste um, the version that's closer to the oral. Uh, and I can't help but notice um, there is I think a wisdom you may not yourself have recognized in your choice of words. You said, well, you know, there is still something real, as crazy as this is, as, as, as fantastic. There's something real about what's going on. Parents really do give, mm -hmm. um, you know, arm their children. Well, indeed, parents do arm their children. But notice that the brothers 
um, continue to ride off on their horse. But Boots does not, in fact, ride off on his horse. He stops because the horse is tired. Mm-hmm. And he demount, dismounts. And we don't hear him clanking along. He's not using his mail. Although the father has given him these tools, he himself just presents himself. Mm. And as you say, when he cries, his waters begin the, the new life process that is undergone uh, ultimately by him becoming a merman and coming out of the full uh, river. Um, the flow of time is there. Um, I like this more oral version, and I think you've put your finger on it. Again, I think without intending it, correct me if I'm wrong, you keep saying that the father wants, the king wants to see if his sons can come back with a suitable wife. (laughs) Suitable. Now, I have a three-piece suitable that I use for weddings and bar mitzvahs, right? Mm-hmm. The task is to create a shirt. It and is. You can create, well, a shirt. This is part of a suit, right? You, you talk about suitability. And it's is something that is suitable fits. Mm-hmm. And the, the shirt that the doll in the grass made fits her. Yeah. And she... Once she is goes through the water, fits him, and I think that this this has so many unsaid things in the original version, and yet at a deep emotional and cultural level, supposing that you accept these hierarchies of male over female, moneyed over not moneyed, and so on, supposing you accept those hierarchies, it all rings true. Mm-hmm. That's why. We can the, the Norse can write it one way. You can find another version of the Norse tale. The Classics Illustrated Junior can take that same skeleton and present it in yet another way. You can make up your own version, mm-hmm. naming the other eleven brothers and the the wives they bring back. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening, and remember. You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.